Digital 410 Productions proudly presents What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast with your host, Don Abernathy. So this is RJ Nevins coming live from WYZ UK, <laughs> Orlando, Florida. Digitized live from the At Computers Mobile Studio in the Orange County Convention Center in Orlando, Florida. We are coming to you from the American Kennel Club Dog Show and uh, all-around con, I guess. You know, I was thinking this is probably the first time a non-dog-based podcast is recorded from an AKC dog show, but there's good reason for that. Uh, For those of you who are a serial listener to the uh, What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, you're familiar with the movie Walking Point and the book Walking Point, and you have listened to the episode we did with RJ and uh, Ed and the whole cast and crew of Walking Point, but we are here today at the autograph booth. RJ Nevins joins us once again. Sir, how have you been doing for the last year or so? I have been good. Good, good, good. Busy. Busy. Promoting the book. Promoting the film. Sure. And, uh, yeah, just keeping up with life. Now, the last time we spoke, it was at the, uh, actually at the wrap of the movie, and uh, everybody's excited, and, uh, you know, I, I gotta say, that night still, um, you know, it's still impacting me just because how close everybody was. That was a fun night. And that was a great night. And uh, But things have yeah. been progressing for you. Um, you basically had your premiere. We had our premiere in Houston, Texas. We had um, we invited uh, all of our cast and crew out to come and see our finished product. That we were really excited to, to show people. And we had a great show. We had a book signing afterwards and sold out of all the books that we had. Fantastic. Barnes & Noble. Yeah, Barnes & Noble, yeah. And, uh, yeah. Very blessed to be there. And for the last year, you've been uh, touring around promoting the book, doing a lot of autograph signing, getting attention to the book. Right, right, yeah. Just trying to trying to bring awareness to not just our book, but the the story and the you know the story of the first military working dogs from World War II in general. Yeah. And I know not too long ago, uh, the National Museum for Pacific War had you guys. You guys kind of went back out there because that's you know one of the key locations you uh, you shot your movie at. They had you back out there. You did a book signing and all mm-hmm. that. You sure did, yeah. Yeah, that was, that was a great turnout. We had fun. It was it was nice to connect back with the museum and uh, with our good friend Jeff Copsetto over there, who, who runs that uh, Living History program over there, and actually has a role in the movie himself. So it was nice to connect with him and see his wonderful wife Tammy and hang out and just uh, reminisce and smoke some cigars and drink a little. Oh, water. absolutely! I mean, when you're hanging out with Jeff Copsetto, there's cigars <laughs> going to be uh, somewhere in play. I went when I was out there, me, him, and. Uh, his right-hand man, Aaron, we uh, went around, uh, you know, around the town and uh, stopped at the cigar bar and enjoyed it ourselves. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's imperative with, when you're with Jeff. Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. You know, it's so nice to see Duke and Ed and them doing their thing and uh, how well, you know, this is, as, as the audience can hear, this is a very loud, kind of a crazy environment, but Duke's just like lounging, just taking it all in. and He loves it. He loves it, and he's so well-behaved, and uh, obviously, but uh, just, you know, because... You know, obviously, being a dog, being a uh, narcotics dog and a police dog, you know, obviously he can be around a lot of chaos, but uh, he right. it just doesn't seem to affect him at all, and he's just he's just so chill. It's amazing. Yeah, he he loves what he does. Ed loves what he does. Duke loves what he does, and uh, yeah, we're happy to have him here in the booth, the, the Doberman Pinscher Club of America booth, kind of the meet the breed booth here at the. Uh, AKC Nationals. Well, I appreciate you guys having me out and uh, enjoying yes, and, and getting back together with you guys and reminiscing and uh, just seeing how your project's taking off and blowing up. And 
lot, there seems to be a lot of interest here this weekend. I know you guys have uh, signed a lot of books, taken a lot of photos, and talked to a lot of people about your movie, and uh, things are just going so well for it. Um, what's the uh, plan with the, uh, the, uh, the, the movie version, the shortened version? Yeah, so, so what we're planning right now is, um, you know, we're finishing up kind of some pitch material, and we're about to start the whole the pitch process, and we're going to... We're hoping to turn it into a uh, kind of an eight-hour limited television series. And, sure. Uh, we're going to start approaching some of the some of the online folks, Apple, Netflix, some of these people that that we think would enjoy the content that we have to offer. And um, yeah, you know, it's a great story. We love telling it, and uh, we hope that we can find a somebody that can help distribute it for us well i mean that's the great thing about the uh, day and age in which we live in now there's so many different outlets for independent you know filmmakers and project producers to uh to use to get the projects out there you know 20 30 years ago you basically had either hope one of the the major four stations on tv picked you up or one of their subsidiaries or you know one of the five major distribution companies but nowadays there's so many options between the netflix the hulus the disney plus yeah. distribution is it's a little bit more open than it used to be and so hopefully that'll help you guys find a way to uh, get the project out there and expand it and spread the word about the you know the working dogs in the marine corps yeah yeah we're, we're excited you know we've we're um we're putting it out on the film festival circuit right now so we're just waiting for you know certain film festivals to announce and um Hopefully it's going to get screened at a festival where some of your listeners are listening because we're, we're really excited to share it with everybody. We've, you know, just being the writer and director and producer of it, spent so much time on it and, and I've watched it so many times and I, and I still get the same, you know, good feeling that I got when I watched it the first time after it came out of post-production and so just super excited and we're, we really want to share the story with everybody and, you know, we're... I, I say this all the time that we don't really do it for ourselves. We do it for other people that were involved involved in our project, and you know, we, we just really want to submit in in media, sure. you know, in, in film, in film media, the actual story of the first really trained military working dogs, and, um, and that's that's really what we want to do. And it just we hope we have the opportunity to do that. Now, when it comes to writing a book or putting together a video or a movie. And you obviously there's an editing process, and you have editors and things like that. Um, do you find that when you're working on a project like that, sometimes it helps to bring outside eyes, people who aren't there for the entire editing process or there for the shoot? Because, for example, I found when I edit podcasts or when I'm doing a video, because I've been a part of it the whole time, I may edit something out not thinking that I did because in my mind it's still there. Yeah. And so when you write a book or edit a movie or a video, sometimes it helps if you show that or allow someone to read it who wasn't there during the editing process at all. And so that if something did get cut out that you thought was still in there, that, that would raise a confusion for them. You kind of find that that helps when you're working on a project? Yeah, you know, we, we our, our, um, our editor is Lori Powers. She, sure. she's, she's based out of Austin. She's an actual... Um, you know, by trade, she's a visual effects artist, and she does some tremendous work and worked on some big blockbuster films. And you know, she she wasn't on set at all. She you know she got to read the script. She knew what we wanted, and she we, we went over storyboards and everything. Um, you know, and the the writer is or the uh, the editor is basically your second writer. Yeah. They, they can they can change the film's tone, the mood of it, uh, just by placing things in, in various spots and. You know, Lori's very akin to it. And I, I sat with her 
uh, a few times while she was editing just for you know, director giving some direction and, and view to the film and uh, she just did a wonderful job but yeah I mean I, I think I think there's certain aspects of having a monset or not having a monset there's there's pluses and minuses to both of those and but I can say that Lori did a wonderful job and I was so excited to, to have her as, uh, as part of the project. Well, another thing, too, is when you have someone like that who was on set or who maybe disconnected a little bit from the project, they don't hold things so dear and close. And so when it comes down to editing, whereas you, since you wrote it or you directed or you shot it, you may really have something that means a lot to you that may not be so um, important to the story, per se, but you really enjoy it. Sure. And, and when it comes to the editing process, that person doesn't have that attachment, sure. and they can see it for what it is. Say, well, you know, it's really not conducive to the to, to the flow of the book or the movie we really need to get that out whereas you know if you're doing it or someone who was there or close to the project was doing it they may not may not be so willing to remove it yeah yeah and that's what's great about it is you know i, I gave Lori kind of free reign on the editing process um and and there were a couple times where she wanted to include something or i wanted to include something and you know we may have agreed we uh, agreed to disagree on a couple other things sure but uh, i mean that's the process and having a having having her eyes on it uh kind of independent of ever being on set and seeing it actually filmed i think helps out and 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 even showing it to people who you know kind of a director's cut once you're done and showing it to people that have no clue of what the movie or the story or the film or anything is about yeah is crucial to it you, you get the impartial view and if, you know the worst the worst thing you want to do is if you hear somebody uh, if you show it to somebody and they watch it and they're like well what the hell is that story about mm-hmm. that's what you don't want to hear yeah. but but when you when you get the good positive feedback and you know great story we loved it we loved the music we loved everything about it and, uh, you know, it's just like getting notes. You, you, you do something and somebody gives you notes and, uh, you know, you, you choose what you want to do with those notes. Well, and you just kind of brought up music. When it comes to uh, doing your own independent product, project, uh, the score can make or break a film, a TV show, a cartoon, whatever. How do you go about finding the right person who um, looks at the project the same way you do, who has the skill set, and you can uh, rely heavily on to set that tone because the tone, you know, you're you're in charge of setting the tone visually and story-wise, but that that third or fourth element is the music, and without the proper score, you know, it could just completely change the tone in which you had set up in your mind to something completely different. So our uh, our composer is a young man named Eric Schroeder who's out in L.A. He's, uh, he's, he's composed other stuff for me in the past, other films that I've written, other people have directed, but he's composed the music for those films. So I approached Eric um, about composing Walking Point, music for Walking Point, and uh, he was so excited when we first talked because he, he has been wanting to do a historical piece, and it was right up his alley, and so uh, he, he kind of went through the first draft of it, sent it back to me listened to it, loved it, had very very few notes, if, if any, to go back as far as changing, because he hit everything on cue in the story once, he, once we had the good edit down. And he uh, he then told me, he said, hey, RJ, I've, I've got a connection with the Budapest Orchestra. That helps. Yeah, it helps. Absolutely, that helps. <laughs> and I said, well, he said, you know, it's, it's X amount of dollars if you want to do that. And, and I said, well, that's it? Yeah. That's, that's, that's how much it costs to have them score it? We have you know, 40 people playing strings and, and everything, and and you can definitely tell. You can definitely tell when you're 
when you're doing strings kind of uh, I don't know what you would call it electronically yeah versus as, a, as opposed to the acoustics and actually having an orchestra perform it yeah and we listened to them side by side and, and you know there was no question about it. it was it was worth the money to uh to bring the budapest orchestra on board well to an audiophile it's the same difference of running um, a guitar through a solid state amp or through an old tube amp that tube just provides the heat and the uh the warmth to the sound mm-hmm. and definitely anytime you can get a real orchestra with real equipment and real strings versus somebody with a Casio keyboard, there's all the difference in the world. And let me say that, you know, just when, when Eric came through the score, we first listened to it, and, and then we started screening it to, to certain people, letting them listen to it. I mean, and even when we did the private screening, one of the one of the big takeaways that we got when people were giving us feedback was the music is phenomenal. Sure. And that's what we wanted. I mean, we're, we're creating a historical war drama, and we wanted it to to pull at the heartstrings of, of people in the audience and to evoke emotion and to uh, you know to, to bring the emotion that you want to get out of that scene to a head. And there's no doubt about it. There, there were people crying in the premiere and stuff. So we, we kind of felt like we hit that. And I would think that the uh, Budapest Orchestra, um, there's just something about the area from which they're from and the content of the movie and where it takes place. You know, just that feel is probably a little more um, more natural to the theme of the movie as well. Yeah, for sure. And the Budapest Orchestra, I mean, I, such a great group of people, easy to deal with, and such talented, talented artists. And, and what, what's amazing is, you know, we also recorded them while they were filming it. And, and then you go back and you actually watch the video of yeah. 40 people playing the, uh, the music for your movie. It's fabulous. Absolutely. It's just a feeling I can't even describe. you got people halfway across the world. You're working with people halfway across the world that have helped you put this project together. It's amazing. And I think when you visually see them doing their work for your work, um, the visual aspect of seeing all those people acting as one organism, because when a band is on, they are on. Oh, man. And they communicate visually by looking at each other or looking at the conductor and looking at the music. But I think when you see the uh, amount of work and effort that they put forth to, to make your project go that much further, it probably meant even more to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's, we were just so lucky to have them and have that connection because we, we probably never would have had that without Eric. So kudos to Eric. So uh, what's now? obviously the holidays are coming up. Um, I would assume you're probably going to pick up your book tour a little bit more at the beginning of next year, or what's the next on your guys' schedule as far as your uh, book signing tour and promotion? Uh, so we don't really have anything on the calendars right now. We're going to enjoy some Christmas with family back in Nashville. Um, we, we plan on really hitting the whole pitch uh, pitch party, whatever you want to sure. call it, to uh, various studios and stuff like that the, the first quarter of next year. Um, but yeah, there'll, there'll be book signings in there. and. Um, for everybody that's following us on social media, Walking Point, uh, the movie, whether it's Facebook or Instagram, um, you know, we hope to be announcing some some film festival screenings as well. So we're supposed to start announcing in mid-January. So we're excited to hear back. You know, it's a, it's a tough competition in the film festival sure. circuit. You know, when there are uh, you know only only so many screens. Yeah, there's only probably 40 or 50 spots. Uh, for a short film, especially one that's lengthy like ours, you know, ours is almost 30 minutes long, and uh, you know, it's uh, got five or six thousand other entries. They're all yours. That that many entries, it becomes you know, the competition's pretty stiff. There's a lot of good people out there making independent short films, so 
but we feel we feel we can compete with those guys for sure. You know, and we kind of spoke about it in the past. One of the things that always strikes me as uh, curious, and it's a good reason why you guys put so much effort into this book, is I, I find people are surprised when they learn about the history of the dogs in World War II that, uh, you know, the Marine Corps and the Army, they weren't running kennels. They didn't yeah. have a bunch yeah. of dogs stocked up ready to go. This is something that kind of came up with as a necessity. You know, necessity is a mother of invention. This kind of came up during the war, and people were literally enlisting their dogs. That's right, yeah, and that's how we kind of came across this story, and that's that's one thing we wanted to emphasize, too, is, you know, uh, the patriotism of the families back in the 40s, you know. It's, you really have to put it all together to think they're coming out of the Great Depression, things aren't that great, um, you know, and then Pearl Harbor happens, and uh, you have this this massive buildup of canines for this unit, and, you know, most of them came from families donating them to the war effort. And, you know, it's, for people out there that have animals, you know, you, you stop and think, would I ever give my dog yeah. up? Right now, would you give your dog up to go fight over in Afghanistan or wherever it may be? There's not that many people no. who would do that. So, it's uh, you know, we really wanted to emphasize that that piece of it. Well, and not only are you shining the light of the contribution of canines to World War II, but like you just said, modern-day dogs. Mm-hmm. People read, read your book and see your, your film, they may be more inclined to go out and Google, hey, uh, is this still going on today? What happens with the dogs after they have served their time? Do they get come back home or they go up for adoptions? And and so you're really kind of shining a, you know, you're you're shining a light down a dark alley that will lead people to other avenues to look into possibly, uh, you know, donating to um, retired war dogs of modern day and and help find homes for those too. And you're just kind of opening uh, the spotlight to the whole the whole community now in 2019. Yeah, I tell you, man, we've we've made some fabulous connections through this with uh, you know, Jason Johnson at Project Canine Hero and James Lamont at Canine P, uh, PTSD. And just so many other organizations that, that not only kind of helped us through you know, throughout the process of making the movie, but but also you know we, we developed a lot of friendships and uh, and everything, just like we did with you, Don. Well, I appreciate <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, buddy. <laughs> well, and and as you were talking, I was just thinking about Ed, and uh, the nice thing about what Ed does with Duke is not only are you guys shining a light like we just spoke about about. Um, you know, war dogs and their contribution to war efforts, but when people meet Duke, they realize, oh, hey, police dogs are just regular dogs. Yes, they work, and when they work, they're in a certain mindset, and they got a job to do that they're trained for, mm-hmm. but just because they, you know, search down drugs or they chase down bad guys doesn't mean that they're mean or, you know, Duke's the sweetest dog in the world. Yeah, he is. And so I think that really helps um, the community realize that police dogs are just regular dogs with a cool job and so that just because you see them on tv and all that chasing down bad guys and biting them but once they're not working they're just as sweet as any other family dog just well better trained yeah that's true and that's you know when we when we were looking for our lead dog we we had several of them we were kind of you know cyber stalking online and and uh when we came across duke we we kind of saw what him and uh his handler ed source sergeant ed source were doing uh in just their community out in menlo park uh, going to schools, you know, interacting, taking this big, huge Doberman uh, and, and interacting that, that big dog with these children in, like, elementary schools sure. and, and taking Duke into hospitals to visit, uh, you know, sick children. You know, it was amazing. And then, you know, just you put, you 
with that on top of that he, he's a well-trained dog and he's well behaved and uh, just watching the videos online of all that put together it's it was kind of a no-brainer so we reached out to Ed and he was he was ecstatic to be a part of the project and we were certainly welcomed him with open arms and Duke's just one of those dogs you often see it with golden retrievers they just kind of exude love there's just something oh, about yeah. them they radiate and he's one of those dogs that when you just walk up to him everybody's like, oh come here come here come here and he is, he's all for it and if you didn't see him with his service dog gear on and his, his tactical vest, you wouldn't even know or even think that he would be a uh, working, active police dog. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, he's just a big, lovable Doberman. <laughs> Good afternoon, ladies. <laughs> Once again, we are uh, recording from the uh, Animal, uh, the American Kennel Club's uh, dog show here in Orlando. And... Um, Got a, lot of, got a lot of interest today. It's been a lot of people stopped by. Yesterday was uh, even more active. We had a we had a lot of people. We sold a lot of books. A lot, a lot of people were really unaware of uh, even if they were interested in the in the Doberman breed, were not really knowledgeable or, or had no real idea that Dobermans were used in World War II. Yeah, and kind of like Ed was saying, the last time we interviewed him was when he went to his um, commanding officers and presented the idea of having a Doberman as a police dog. You know, they kind of said, well, we're all for it, but we are also aware that they're much like a pit bull or a Rottweiler. There is a bit of a stigma, and so we're going to have to work extra hard to help uh, defeat that stigma and make people realize that uh, he's one heck of a dog. And uh, speaking of the devil, here he comes now. Here, Here comes Ed. We'll uh, see if we can get Ed over here momentarily and uh, sit down and uh, all that you good stuff. Uh, want me to put him in this seat? Sure. It's good talking to you, yeah, sir. You too, Thanks brother. for having me out. Everything. And uh, good luck with everything. And, yeah. uh, and and for those of you guys listening, Don was a great help in helping us film down. We, we filmed some jungle scenes in Bukelia, Florida, and Don was on set with us. Helped out tremendously, and uh, we had a great time at the after party. Well, I appreciate <laughs> it. I, I definitely help, uh, super... Um, thankful for your guys' hospitality and uh, just the great family environment that you guys create in a working environment. And um, Hi there. We've got some young fans here petting Duke and talking to our Jeff. He's he's a great salesman. Duke's just like, yep, here we go. But uh, thank you so much, RJ, and uh, we'll talk to you guys next time. Absolutely, brother. Thank Thank you. This episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast is brought to you by our friends at At Computers Cape Coral. At Computers has been providing IT solutions for all of Southwest Florida since 2004. And this year for 2020, At Computers wants to help you protect your peace of mind by offering you a special price for their online backup. Right now, if you sign up for the online backup of At Computers, you can get it at $0.09 a gig per month for the entire year of 2020. So call ACT at 239-283-1120 or reach out to them on their Facebook or through their website, act-capecoral.com. Use the word podcast and get your data back up for $0.09 a gig per month for the entire year of 2020. Once again, call ACT Computers at 239-283-1120 and say podcast or reach out to them on their social media or website. And joining our show once again via Skype this time because, well, uh, my phone app was uh, not working properly. It kept wanting to play adverts over top of our conversation. But he's coming from uh, Georgia. He joins us once again, uh, Jeremy Petrella. Jeremy, how are you doing tonight? Pretty good, Don. How are you doing? I'm doing a lot better now that I can talk to you without hearing ads <laughs> for, like, uh, Duracell and uh, weird 
skin cream over top of you? Yeah, I was going to say the last one was a skin cream ad. It, as we were just talking about off air, the technology is a wonderful thing. If, if it makes you feel better in, in the midst of you uh, having that problem, I was actually trying to fix a problem with my night alarm on my uh, BD-71 switchboard. So don't waste time, right? <sighs> I got a sad story about that. So uh, um, BD-71 switchboard or wasting time? Um, a little bit of both. Um, so... I have discovered a little thing called Facebook Marketplace, which we all know and love, and I have discovered a way to you can look without outside of the realm of your neighborhood. And so I set my distance to like 200 miles or 100 miles, what have you, the greatest distance it'll allow you to travel. And somebody over in Merritt Island, outside of Miami, a little further north, was selling a field telephone for $45. There you go. And I was going to, I was up in Dade County to do a Savage race, and I'd gotten in touch with this guy. I said, hey, I'll come out afterwards and pick this thing up. What are you going to haggle on the price? So I went up there, and I did my seven-mile race covered in mud. And it's like a three-hour drive from the race to there. And then after I would have picked it up, it had been like an extra, added like an extra two hours to my drive home. And I was exhausted, worn out. And I just... I didn't go, and but I've been in communication with the guy twice. I'm saying, hey, I'll pay shipping on it. Here's my address. Give me a quote on shipping, and I haven't heard back from the the thing's still up for sale. But he just doesn't want to hassle with the shipping, which I get. But it's like, where else are you going to find a field telephone for forty five bucks? Well, if you get lucky, a couple places. But that's the first one I've lucky. seen in all these years. But this isn't about me and my lost uh, opportunity to get a field telephone. This is about Jeremy. An event coming up on January 17th through the 19th. Why don't you explain Absolutely. to our friends uh, what the event is? Okay. Um, we are hosting the second annual World War II event in Lakeland, Georgia. Um, as you said, January 17th through 19th. Um, this year we've decided to change the theme. Last year we went with um, the Italian Theater with Raid on the Rapido. And we had some friends, of course, wanted to do European theater, so we switched it and moved a little north, and we're doing uh, Crossroads to Malmody, uh, recognizing, again, the 75th anniversary year of the Battle of the Bulge. And, um, but moving a little bit out of that classic zone of around Bastogne in, into the uh, Malmody sector and Stavelot. Um, the thing that we're hoping really kind of sets this event apart um, is, as, as you know, being down here in Florida, the that they're well we're in georgia we're just over the border there just isn't as many events as there used to be and all reenactors want different things with an event and you've got people who want tacticals you've got people who want more living history and we might have bitten off more than we could chew but we kind of came up with the idea that we think we can do both basically by doing both what i what i'm getting at is this idea um, we could hold an event that what we mean by a hybrid event that you could actually have um, both a tactical and um, a spectator battle at the same time. Um, by Friday and Saturday, using the field we have at our disposal to create scenarios for the, the participants, for the soldiers involved, and then being able to open it up to those people who want to meet with spectators on Saturday so that we can reach out to the public because we feel, you know, that's an important part of what we do. Now, I know last year was the first annual, which is ironic because you can never have the first annual. It doesn't become the first annual until the second one, which is kind of weird. But I know, um, you know, 
the floor you, a lot of the heavy turnout was from the florida the crew i'm sure hopefully we'll have a lot of florida folk turn out this year as well um have you heard any interest coming out of other states within the area we have um interest is a good way to put it is basically at this point um obviously the with the bigger site we, we were hoping to get a bigger turnout and so far we we have more interest um florida is still you know pretty big area for us it's close by um, but we've had people uh, pre-register and contact us from South Carolina and Alabama um, as well. Um, I got some interest out of Tennessee. I'm trying to remember. I don't think they've actually pre-registered, but we got some contact in Tennessee. Um, so we really have started to get interest drummed up in, you know, three, four state range. And that, that was one of the things we hoped we could do because the location of Lakeland, Georgia, does put it in a position where it is able to, you know, draw from South Carolina, Alabama, um, Georgia, Florida, pretty pretty easily. Well, you were saying earlier that um, the amount of Florida living history events or re- well reenactment events primarily have dwindled in the last year or so, and that's because of an unfortunate state legislator change, which is that you can't do any weapons demos with anything firing a brass cartridge on. Florida state property and so that means we can't do any weapons demos unless we're on private property or property that's not held by Florida state proper or in part of their park system and unfortunately as I was speaking a while back on one of our episodes when it comes to the general public it's the bang bang pop pop that brings the crowd and so you know, these events that were, yes, primarily 90% living history, but that 10% that whether it was a weapons demo or a, you know, somewhat silly reenactment in a corner parking lot or, you know, squared off piece of grass, that's what brought in a lot of the attention. And um, without that, you know, the crowd's not interested. And if the crowd's not interested, you know, the event's not going to happen. And so, you know, yes, we will, especially down here in Florida, be looking for lack of a better phrase, new home for more events, and Georgia's not that far away. No, and and it is hard, and, and I think that's another thing, too, that, that reenactors as, as a community have to take into account. Um, anybody who's ever tried to help organize or put on an event, it, it's a lot of work, and there's a lot of logistics involved, which makes it uh, a lot more difficult than some people realize in terms of finding a site. Sure. And we're, we're really kind of as you know, last year we, we were on um, the street center, which is a historic site in, uh, in Lakeland, Georgia. And it was a smaller piece of property, but we had access to it. And it worked well for what we were doing. This year we're experimenting with a, an agreement with the Boy Scouts of America. Um, camp Patton is a Boy Scout camp, and they are working with us that weekend basically um, to rent us their facilities. Um, so that we have a new home with a lot more playground for us as reenactors um, to to really make this something special, and we're hoping it works out really well. Um, so far, they've been very cooperative, and it's been it's been a lot of a lot of fun getting this ready. Um, we still plan to use the Street Center for those who came who might be listening who came uh, last year um, for the USO show Saturday night. It, it's for those who were not there. It's worth it just to see that. It's, it's a beautiful old building. It's actually the gymnasium and auditorium of the original high school in Lakeland, Georgia. So it is a period building from, from the mid-20th century, and, and it really is a nice setting for a USO show. And the band that you guys have played, is it going to be the same band as last year? Yeah, it, it is the Lake uh, Lanier County Jazz Band. 
Um, in fact, we have a meeting with them tomorrow to go over some of the script um, and, and what they're going to do and, and the logistics of it. Um, we have already prepared the show for next year, and we will have a new cast. Um, the cast last year did a great job, no, no offense to them, but um, local high school, actually Berrien County High School, which is uh, one county over, um, their drama department wanted to be involved. And, and like I said, for us, a lot of this is outreach. And if you can bring the kids into this, that's something that they're going to remember. And it's not just an educational experience that helps us, you know, as reenactors to get other people involved and interested. And uh, so, and so as of right now, barring sudden changes, uh, the, the, the MC will once again be Bob Hope, but we are going to have the Andrews sisters and Judy Garland and kids performing all these roles for us. Well, the nice thing about that, too, and I think we spoke about it a little bit last year, especially when you're having your second one or your first one or even your third one, um, the more community support you can get behind you, the more likely these events will reoccur, and the more communal, meaning multiple communities, you know, especially if you live in a couple of areas that have a denser population and more spread out, if you can get multiple yeah. communities behind you, that's even better because then you're you're getting the word spread out to multiple ponds and multiple groups of people with the potential of access to more businesses and more youth groups and more people looking to uh, help you out in the form of a beneficial community service to not only you but to them as well. And so the more communities that you can get involved, whether it's, you know, hey, this this uh, school's drama department wants to, you know, help participate in this and this school's, you know, whatever wants to do that and the three different Boy Scout groups are going to come together because they all go to that same camp and all that. It's just, it's more, you know, it's more support for what you guys are trying to do. Oh, absolutely. And like I said, it's very much a give and take, which is, is we like doing what we do, but at the same time, the reason we're doing is to remember the individuals who have actually fought and made sacrifices and the women back home and all of that. And, and if the other people in the community aren't realizing that, it does kind of ring a little hollow. So that's why we wanted to make sure not to completely just close it off as a tactical. Sure. As much as, as, as that it's fun and as much as there's this little part of us that wanted to do it, um, there was this sense that at least we had to try to make this a community event again. And like you said, if, if, if as, as only the second event, and, and I think anytime you're not, constantly thinking about the future you're, you're kind of not going to go anywhere which is the reality is if if the community doesn't you know seem interested we might have to change again but but that's our plan and our hope is to not only have a good time and, and a great experience for reenactors but also um make sure that we're still in that community now obviously that community's with us go ahead that community is what with us, I'm sorry. Sure, that's right. Obviously, we're still uh, three, four, or five weeks away. Um, but do we have a, a better estimate on what the uh, weather patterns can be uh, expected for this this year? <laughs> no. Well, I mean, obviously, I'm not saying it's going to rain on Saturday, but I mean, are are you guys looking at a harder winter up there this time of year? Is it expect to be a warmer winter than normal? I mean, just in a generalized I, 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 sense. Sure. No, it's just funny. I, I said that because it was like, of all the questions I was prepared to answer tonight, that was not one of them. <laughs> well, you got a bunch <laughs> of people living down in 80-degree weather in Florida coming up there to freeze our butt off in a few weeks. We I'll need to know how, how warm we need the dress. 
I, I got you. Well, I was going to say is, is what I can tell you is this. I can tell you the weather pattern was yesterday it pushed 80 here, and then today it barely broke 50. Um, I, I, I don't I know think what it's it the is, nighttime it, weather it's when, we're, when we're laying under a tarp that's more, uh, more important at this aspect because it's when you lay exactly. dormant and you're not moving around. Because I know exactly. And, and go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I was just gonna. I was just gonna say. Well, it's, I think where you're going then is you were at our event last year in Lakeland, and 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 it was a perfect example. It's Saturday was absolutely absolutely gorgeous. It got down pretty cool at night in the upper 40s, low 50s, and then Sunday, it, it was like we we're in the dead of winter in Europe. <laughs> exactly. Because if I remember right. It, it barely got above freezing that day. <laughs> well, I was just up in Alabama a few weeks back, and I think uh, it got down to 43 one night and maybe a little higher, but what made it worse than the cold is we're out on a peninsula. Now, luckily, we're sleeping behind a hill on one side, but we still have wind coming from three directions. And so I came, after night one, I learned a lot about uh, trying to windproof my tent. I started taking my ammo crates and putting it on the corner to, to hold it down to keep the wind from blowing under. Now, obviously, uh, in European theater, the poncho wasn't a as regularly issued as it was in the Pacific. But what I ended up doing is I would sleep on two of my wool blankets, sleep under the other two, and then put my poncho on top of it to help hold the body heat in. And that that did help a little bit. But, uh, you know, it's all part of the fun. I, I, exactly. And I feel your pain. And, and I will say this for everybody that, that's listening, which is, in all seriousness, is we actually hope it gets chilly at night because, after all, we are trying to. We're not going to be able to get you snow, but but we are trying to get the feel for this, and that's part of why we went ahead with January. Is there's so many events we go to in Georgia and Florida where it's just hot, and because of the, our weather patterns, and it's nice to be able to get an experience where when you're actually wearing your wool lined M41, it make, it makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um. You know, um, and and I will say this too, which is is the the one benefit we've got um, being at the camp is is I've been feeling um, over the last several weeks since pre pre registration's been open for months now, just questions from people. One of the questions we're getting a lot is being a Boy Scout camp, uh, what are accommodations like? And basically, the plan is by and large that that soldiers should be you know bringing their tents and we'll be camping um, as we normally would. Um, there is room for modern camping if, if you're an individual who brings a trailer that there's a, there's a place for that. Um, but there is also buildings on the camp, much like we dealt with at the street center last year. If we get into a pinch and the weather does turn foully against us, people shouldn't stay away because there's places for them to go. It's just that we, we think that, you know, that the experience is part of it, like you said. So you want to be out in your tent. You want to have that experience, but, if you're looking at the weather and it says, oh, it's going to rain and I don't know what to do, there is places that we can put people up in, in the case of an emergency. Well, and let's not forget the reason a lot of us, at least early on into this, now I can understand for some of the older cats with uh, health issues, but one of the reasons we do this is we're supposed to be walking a mile in these guys' boots. And so, you know, exactly. thank God we don't have to experience the full horrors of war and, you know, the death and all, all the, the horrible sides, but we can up to each person experience the the other hardships i.e cold weather and you know sleeping on, on a rock or a root and uh you know just yeah. just trying to get the the slightest little comprehension of you know the discomforts of what they went through 
Absolutely. And again, that's one of the things that we're trying to do with this event, not, not make it uncomfortable. But, but provide the opportunity for people to, to experience it at what level they want to. Um, so for example, um, for the American, for the Allied forces, basically Americans, is there's going to be more than one camp location. And the idea behind it being for those people who want to be closer into where the bathrooms are in the buildings, there'll be one spot. But if you're an individual who wants an immersion experience where you don't see cars, you don't see any, you know, you're in the woods. There's places for those people, but they just have to be aware. That means they are going to need a shovel and their own toilet paper ration. Just point me to the closest tree. I'll take care of it from here. <laughs> exactly. Well, you were speaking about pre-registration was been open for a while. When is the registration cutoff for those people who still haven't gotten their vacation time approved or they still don't know what days or, you know, this, that, and the other thing, sure. where they may be on, you know, January 17th through the 19th, and they're still on the fence, they want to do it. But as we all know, we're all old, we all have families, we all have loved ones and people who Absolutely. like to uh, commit us to other things without our knowledge. <laughs> uh, for those people, uh, when's the final cutoff? Well, the good news is, is is the big deal with pre-registration is we want to just be able to get a head count. So and please pre-register if you're interested. Um, the fee for the event is $20, but a lot of that is we just have more overhead. And, and if we're going to make this work, we've got to cover our bases, and we're going to make it worth your, your $20. That isn't due until you arrive. However, you can walk on. So the long story to you, the short answer to your question is that we are taking walk-on so you can walk on that weekend um, but the fee is going to be $25 just to kind of encourage you to go ahead and pre-register so we can get our numbers pretty well squared away um, so the pre-registration cutoff is is that week um, I believe it's Monday or Tuesday of that week and then registration itself the walk-on registration can happen um, Thursday, Friday, or Saturday, which is something else people might be interested in. Um, the tactical on Friday it is a Friday. We're going to do the battle on Friday um, for, for the reenactors, the scenario, um, which means you can arrive on Thursday. Um, the registration officially opens Thursday at 2. If you have a problem and can want to get there even earlier, let us know. Um, there will most likely be people on site well early at 2 o'clock. Um, if you're coming into town and looking for things to do, good um, luck. Lowndes County. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I was going to say, way to put, way to put point the eye. In Lakeland itself, good luck. Um, but if you're coming through Valdosta, the Valdosta Museum there it actually has a lot of stuff people might be interested in. It's a, it, it, it's a crazy museum, it's a local history museum, um, but they have all sorts of artifacts from World War One and World War Two that people might be interested in. Um, and there's also, for those who don't know, um, wait, I, I shouldn't even tell you this. There's a flight training museum in Douglas, Georgia. The reason why I said I shouldn't tell you this is just on them. I mean, if you're coming in on Thursday, they're not open. They're only open on Friday and Saturday. Yeah, so we'll just ignore that part. You can uh, do that yeah, the following weekend. <laughs> exactly. But but that's that's the basic uh, answer to your question is, is we are taking walk-ins, but we'd really like you to pre-register, and you can get there as early as Thursday. Um, and that way you're ready to go on Friday. You know, and so last year was definitely a good time, and I'm, I'm looking forward to coming back down again this year. 
Well, we're looking forward to seeing you, Don. In fact, we were at uh, the Lakeland Christmas Parade just last week uh, doing some advertising, reaching out to the community. And uh, Miss Nell Rockmore, who you interviewed last year, um, told me to tell you hi. Um, she was looking forward to seeing you again this year. You know, and that was a great interview, and it was really nice to um, have the opportunity to sit down with her on location. But the difference between that and my regular interviews is because her family history is what it is, and the fact that she had a trunk full of the updated version of her family's biography, I was actually able to take the book home. Um, She actually published some of her husband's diary writings about... um, his time overseas and so what I was able to do was take some of those transcribe them have my brother do voiceover work and so when she's trying to tell his story in that interview where the areas that she couldn't remember I was able to find some of it in that story and have Gordon read it almost in his voice and that was one of the first time I really did that on this podcast because you know we're constantly toying around with doing different uh, production levels and that really helped fill out that interview and so that's a really good episode and I'll I'll include a link to that for those of you who are just uh, who haven't heard all of our episodes or just discovered our podcast. And um, I'm so happy to hear that uh, almost a year later she's still doing well and that uh, she's still um, doing what she does for that community. I know she's a big part down there. Oh, she is. In fact, the Rockmore property, the the camp, that, the Boy Scout camp where we are, part of it was donated by the Rockmores. And in fact, the property right behind it, which will be used by the Germans somewhat, actually belongs in her family too. So she, she is a bit of the pillar of that community. And, and it was, I was just as excited as you were when I ran into her and she immediately remembered you and wanted to make sure I said hi to you. And I told you we were going to be talking. Well, there's probably a good chance that she will make her way over there again, um, you know, January 17th through the 19th. And so hopefully I'll have the opportunity to uh, shake her hand once again and thank her for all she does for that community down there and uh, thank her for sitting down for the interview. I'm so looking forward to it. Um, It's been uh, kind of a slow start of a season for me down here just because, um, unfortunately, there's been a few events who fell on weekends where I've been out doing other things or obligated to do other stuff. And so I'm... I'm looking forward to get back in, back out into the field and uh, getting some dirt under my fingers again. Absolutely, and and we're really hoping to get dirt under your fingers. That just to kind of give any everybody kind of a clue, because we don't want to tell you too much. Is is the basic idea of the tactical scenarios for the weekend is um, the period of time between December 17th through 19th of 1944, as uh, as uh, Kampf Group Piper is pushing deeper into what will become known as the Bulge, um, trying to cross the Amblev River near Stavelot on its way to the Moose River. Um, and basically, the scenarios we've got are in that time frame, in that geographic area. You're basically, the GIs are trying to slow this German advance in this small crossroads area um, out between Stavelot and Malmody. Now, for if that interests you. Oh, absolutely. I mean, people, especially those who are really into the authenticity, they always want to know the timeline so they can make sure they have the, you know, the right gear, the right, you know, patches, the, you know, down to the mind, the fine, the fine details, so they're not, you know, they don't want to be caught out on Farb Fest anywhere. <laughs> for those. <laughs> For those who were uh, with you last year, uh, some of us want to know what are you doing personally to prepare your immune system for this uh, this year's event? Because unfortunately, <laughs> last year you Mother Nature really stuck it to you, and 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 God bless you, you, you stuck it out. But you were having a hard time there for a few hours. I, 
it, that was the weirdest thing, and, and and I wish I had an answer, um, because I, I I don't know, I don't know, Don. I, I it, it was a you're right, it was a rough morning. I thought I was going to be out of action, but I, but it came back together. One of the things that we might be doing, a couple of us, is uh, the do Korea. Is is if going back to your, I was laughing when you said Farb Fest. If the Farb Fest people allow us, and we might hide it somewhere, is we actually have an M forty nine Arctic tent. There you go. It's slightly out of time period, but it's a lot more comfortable than trying to sleep in that pup tent. Well, you know, you can always put that over in the quote unquote more modern, maybe in between the two, have like a timeline camping. <laughs> So you can, there you go. You know, put between 1944 and 2019, or you know, for those breaking out their 1995 vinyl tents and all that stuff. But it sounds like we <laughs> definitely have the uh, the landscape to accommodate all this, and I'm so looking forward to getting up there. I, I was actually just sitting there thinking, like, I need to get some ammo. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll tell you one of, one of the things about about the site that that actually sold um, a couple of the gentlemen who were up the first the first uh, event last year. Well, it was Sam Howe and Art Dersheimer. Was they they walked back to the camp, and the first thing they noticed was a hill. Yeah. And of course, of course, being from Florida, that just blew their minds. There's a hill and it, no it, palm it, trees. It, We're in. It, exactly. It, it's not it's not a, a tremendous amount, but but there is actual elevation changes um, and a river. That's what when I said that they're they're fighting toward the Amblev River. We have a river. Well, um, the so. crazy thing is, too, though, is that you're still in the area of Georgia that's close enough to Florida that your soil is very, very similar to ours. I was really expecting more you're clay just, and mud, but no, you guys are still far enough south that it's still sandy and uh, very similar to ours. And, that, and that's what I think, you know, it, like you pointed out, and I think it's a good point with, the people, with, with folks down in Florida who are kind of in the, oh, well, they're up in Georgia, is, is it's not that far over the border. Um that, that we are, but it is far enough that for folks coming from South Carolina, it's it's you know about halfway. Sure. And uh, you know, but, who knows? Maybe as this event continues to grow and go what goes on, we'll start to see some Ohio people showing up and in, uh, Indiana and what have you, and things get bigger and bigger and bigger. Because you know, as well, we were discussing earlier, we definitely need it. Well, and that's and that's what we really hope. Um, obviously, we, we got to get it, it, it's just like anything. You got to get through those formative years, um, and then hopefully it can kind of start running on its own, and, uh, and and we can get those people from from around. Because the reality is, it, it isn't just and you know this, it isn't just Florida, it's, it's Georgia, South Carolina, Alabama. There just isn't a whole lot going on down here right now yeah. in terms of events. Um, and especially events that, um, that that lend themselves to allowing um, reenactors to, to play. Um, like, you, like you've pointed out, with so many of the living histories where there are battles, the battle is basically on a football field, and you go out, you know, at, at 2 o'clock, and the battle's over at 2.30, and, and somewhere there's halftime. And, and as you and look it, over your shoulder, it, you can see the hot dog vendor, and, you know, uh, exactly. hear the techno music and, and, coming from the, the guy selling shower heads. And so it's nice to yeah, be and, a little immersive. Exactly. Take something away from it. And we're hoping to be able to, to, to walk the line between giving those reenactors the experience where that's not what's happening, but still making sure that the spectators can feel part of it. One of the ways we're doing that um, is, is that there is, What's going on is there's a living history area because we know there are those reenactors out there um, who just like to talk to the crowd. 
and that's what they're really there to do and they don't necessarily want to go to the tactical and that's and so we set aside part of the camp just for that and that's what they'll be doing meanwhile the other reenactors will of course be be playing in the woods basically it's not a very technical term but <laughs> while, while that's all going on it's called having a full immersive tactical event or, or playing around in the woods. <laughs> well, Jeremy, for those people uh, in, still on the fence or maybe just learning of this event, where can they go? Uh, give out your plugs, your webpage, your social media sites, etc. Okay. Well, basically, um, we have uh, two or three places they can go um, wise. We have an official website, which is, of course, not easy to write down, but I'll go ahead and forward it to you. Um, but it's S H O W E L L I I I S H O W three for those of you from Florida you'll recognize who that is um, dot wixsite dot com backslash crossroads to Malmody and to be honest if you just actually Google crossroads to Malmody it isn't going to be the first thing that pops up you're actually going to get of course the Malmody massacre write ups things like that but it, Google will pop it up for you um, so you can find it that way. And there's also uh, the pre-registration is on Eventbrite. So if you get on eventbrite.com, um, you can go ahead and pull up the site there. And as always, we always include links and all the fun stuff at the page for this episode. So go to WTSPWorldWar2.com and you'll scroll down the homepage. You'll see the link for this and uh, or just go through the menu board and get it that way. But, uh, Jeremy, thank you so much for your time and uh for all those at home who aren't aware of the technical difficulties we went through tonight, it was a bit embarrassing for me, but hey, we got it done. Um, that's what the edit button is for, and we will get it all sorted out. And I, sir, will talk to you here soon. I'm looking forward to it, Don, and looking forward to seeing you. Take it easy, my friend. Thank you very much. Bye. Dr. Harry Cover, then working for Kodak, discovered that the chemical mixture he had used had an incredibly strong bond, so much so that once stuck together, it was very difficult to separate. Having abandoned the mixture as it wasn't what he needed for his current project, his failed compound only resurfaced on the civilian market in 1958 under the new name of Superglue, a full 16 years after its initial invention. We're here once again in Orlando. Ed Soros joins me. How are you doing today, Ed? Doing good. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being out once again. Let me turn you up a little bit. I see Duke is getting, uh, he's been... Uh, had the spotlight on him all day. He's getting a little, getting a little tired. Yeah, he's ready for his union nap. Oh, union nap, huh? You do his union rep as well. <laughs> I don't want, want to get in trouble. Sure. So it's been about almost a year or so since we did our last interview, mm-hmm. and I know from watching your Instagram feeds and uh, the websites and all that stuff, you and uh, Duke have been very, very busy. Not only in. Uh, promoting this book and this film, but also doing your outreach program that you do out in Menlo Park, California, correct? Yes, we're really racking up the frequent flyer miles. We just got back from Vegas for the uh, National Finals Rodeo, where we were out with Project K-9 Hero Booth uh, for a couple days supporting their mission, their 501c3 charity, helping military and police working dogs after they retire, covering their medical we're happy to be on board with them, and we're actually coming out with a new, brand new uh, K9 Duke shirt sponsored by Project K9. Nice. And where can uh, 
I know you guys have a lot of merchandise. What, uh, what's your Instagram feed and your website? Uh, Duke underscore canine on Instagram, and you can find us uh, on Facebook either at Friends of Canine Duke or at Canine Duke specific. So how has this whole thing been for you? I mean, um, as we spoke last time, Duke wasn't an actor previously. He just He's a working narcotics dog. And obviously, uh, he's had some major training, not only in narcotics, but I, I've seen you and him doing your guys' thing out here. What other training has he been through? Um, besides obedience and our basic uh, nose work, a lot of the things that I have him do are just trial and error. Um, just doing things at home and, and then going out and trial and error out in the public. But he is such an intelligent dog that it's uncanny how he, he does things that I ask of him, even at the first time. Uh, just going either at hospitals or the VA or what have you. Um, he's just, he embodies the, the government breed of just doing whatever I ask of him and uh, never looking back. How has he been handling the um, job requirements of being a uh, movie star, the traveling, the uh, book tours, the, um, the remotes, the meet and greets, the traveling? Oh, he loves, he loves to travel. Um, we, we fly pretty much everywhere if, if it's not uh, in California. He loves to fly, um, no problems. Um, he loves just going out meeting the public. Um, usually at the end of the day, he's, he's dead dog tired, so he sleeps through the night. He loves getting out there and meeting and greeting the people. And as we speak, there's some young ladies coming up. They're excited to see him. They're uh, grabbing some stickers. They're good to go. It's, it's amazing, and I, and I still tell people every day how much this dog has opened up. But just uh, how much people gravitate to him in the insta famous. Now I know within I know within the last eleven months or so he's also become a very serious, dedicated big brother. Yeah, <laughs> he has a uh, young sister. Um, what's the uh, the new Doby's name? It's Salt. Salt. She, she is a ten-month-old Doberman. Uh, and she's a tripod. She was born with a, a deformed front leg that we had to have amputated. So she's uh, she's a little rocket on three legs. She keeps Duke in check. And, and Duke, uh, before we got her, my, I had an English bulldog for 11 years, and he passed away. And Duke was kind of alone, and now he's got a, a little baby sister with bugging all day long, and he loves it. They play like uh, they've known each other for. Well, the amazing thing about Salt, for those of you listening at home, you hear tripod, you're probably thinking she's missing a rear leg. That's not the case. It's, as you may have said, it's the front right yeah. leg. Mm-hmm. And to be able to manage your balance when you're kind of front heavy as a dog and still get around. And it's, it's so amazing that when that happens to a dog, especially at a younger age, how they're able to just adapt like it's no big deal and just go on with their, their regular life. Yeah, unlike... Us humans, we, they don't sit around and pity themselves and, and, and do the woe is me depression. They, you know, she, we actually had the day after surgery had to kennel her because she was trying to get up and run around and play with Duke. So we had to kennel her for a good three, four days so she could heal. Um, she actually, um, as you can tell in some of my videos on Instagram and Facebook, she can outrun Duke sometimes and she corners like a Ferrari with, uh, when she pivots that front leg and, and leaves him in the dust. It's hilarious. Now, when, now, I know Duke's a little bit of an anomaly when it comes to his intelligence, but how, how is she taken to training? Obviously, she's not going to be a uh, police dog, but my question was with her quote-unquote disability and your ability to train and uh, work with dogs, 
Has there been discussion about using her as a uh, therapy dog or going to uh, hospitals and outreach programs for young children who have uh, you know, disabilities or life-threatening diseases as a way to uh, lift their spirits and let them know, well, hey, you know, you're not alone. Here's a dog with three legs. Is that something you guys have been playing with? or yeah, no? absolutely. We, after she was, uh, she came through surgery, and she's she's our dog, my intimate girlfriend, Jocelyn's dog, but Jocelyn's going to be the handler, and she's doing the majority of the training, and she's doing very well. Um, but, yes, there has been talk of making her a victim assistance dog through through her department to help victims of violent crime and then reach out to the hospital and the VA with uh, people that are with amputations um, to show them, like you said, um, that there's life after amputation and you can have lead as a full life and, and do things just like everybody else. And that's eventually our goal, but, of course, she's still young and we have to do all the, all the things necessary to get her ready for that point. But she's on track. Um, she has the drive. Uh, we, we joke at our house that she's she's an undercover mouth because she has more energy than I've ever seen in a Doberman. So. Well, one of the things RJ and I were talking about um, before you came over is um, that when you first got started with Duke and you presented the idea of having him being a working narcotics dog, uh, the um, the brass, if you will, at your department said, well, that's fine, but we know there's a stigma with Dobermans, and you're going to have to do an outreach, you know, to kind of help alleviate that stigma, and I think having Salt do that uh, once she's ready, and that'll help not only Duke doing it, but with Salt doing the same thing, to help uh, minimize that stigma that uh, Dobermans are primarily guard dogs and mean, and help, you know, spread the truth about them being sweet, smart, obedient dogs. Um, that's that's our purpose, and you know, Dover, Duke is my first Doberman, Salt is my second, of course. But uh, you know, I was always, you know, you, you get received notions of Dobermans. We all grew up watching Magnum PI with sure. Apollo chasing Magnum around and being that vicious dog. But when I got Duke, that totally changed my mind of, of what these dogs are and what their capabilities are. Uh, you know, when when Duke has a high drive, but his ability to turn it off when he's home and out doing PR work. You know, it's just astronomical. I mean, he and but he'll sit at home, and if it's on my day off, he'll sit on the couch for eight hours and, and uh, just chill. I mean, these dogs are—they uh, can be uh, whatever you want them to be, and then at home, they're, they're just part of the family. And, and now you know you—you've gone from being a daily narcotics officer and a canine handler to a uh, handler of a celebrity. When not only are you doing an interview, but you're doing your autographs at the same time. That's when you know you've reached the epitome. And, and, uh, now, ever in your life did you think that you'd be spending your time writing an autograph for a dog to other people and drawing little paw prints? Never. If, if you, <laughs> you know, four years ago, I mean, well, Duke's almost five. He'll be five in March. But if you were to tell me... That's not his print. Exactly. I memorized his print, and that's exactly his print. <laughs> I have a Doberman. I know what kind of break they are. Thank you. Very Thank welcome. you. Where were we? So, no, if you would have told me five years ago uh, that I'd be here sitting with you on a podcast talking about Duke in the movie, and I would have told you you're crazy. I, five years ago, I would have never, uh, never been on a podcast talking in public. I'd be never out here. Duke uh, totally changed my direction, my course of direction in my life, as well as my uh, professional career. I, 
I would have laughed at your face if you would have told me I'd be here. So. Well, when you were on previously, you were saying you were more naturally an introvert, and because of your work with Duke and especially children and children's hospitals and all the outreach stuff, it really helped you um, become more personable and more sociable. And I'm sure, obviously, doing book signings and uh, PR work to help promote this book and this movie, it's really uh, brought you out of your shell even more. Absolutely. Um, you know, before working in narcotics and gangs, I wasn't big on taking photos. I wasn't big on taking interviews or, or dealing with the public. I was dealing with the worst of the worst. And, exactly. And, you know, doing this, you know, uh, it's a different age of police work. you got you know, you got to flow with the times and, and, and be be that outward police officer, especially at this time of age where, where people see police officers in the, in the media portrayed in a negative light, I'm able to go out there and say, this is, this is my career almost 20 years now, this is what I've done and this is what I'm doing now, uh, being very transparent and, and showing the public that, you know, we're, we're not machines and we're not, we're not the enemy, we're out there, uh, you know, we laugh, we cry, we love, and we die, so... We're just like everybody else. Well, and kind of as you were alluding to earlier, when you get up and you go to work, you spend 8, 12, 13 hours a day dealing with the worst of the worst of humanity, and then you go home and you, and you basically hide out with your, your fan, friends and your family, and the next day you rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. Kind of after a while, I would suspect that uh, having this sort of outlet allows you to kind of reset yourself, kind of like how uh, what you do allows the public to realize that, hey, police are not, you know, this allows you to actually get to interact with normal people. Yeah, exactly. You know the good, the, the good, the, the fine people. Yeah. Whereas on a daily basis, you're you. whether it's Enjoy a drug bust or going to a, a house where kids are not taken care of properly and all that stuff. You just when you see the the, the low end of society every day, it's probably nice to get out and oh yes, I'm, I'm looking at you know the the small part of of the world and now I can actually uh, remind myself that it's different and, and, it, and it's a good outlet like I said it's a great outlet and it's a great way that I can decompress and, and see that you know I'm dealing with the 1% uh, criminal element of the world and there's that 99% that in the beginning of my career that I didn't associate with now it's the opposite you know I'm dealing with the 99% of the people the law abiding citizens and the people that really do support the police so it's, it's a way to decompress and, and, and and helped me throughout my career and to be not only a better cop but a better person, a better you know boyfriend, a better father, um, to where I'm not as jaded as I was before. Sure. Let me ask you a little off question that just kind of came to me. Do you think with the um, quickly spreading popularity of shows like Life PD and all that, do you think that has definitely helped people realize what uh, law enforcement go through on a daily basis when it comes to the way they're treated? and that maybe they realize that some of the footage that they see that comes out on the internet is, is heavily edited so you don't see the whole side of the story and they, it's intentionally tries to paint police in a bad light and so now with shows like Life PD and, and outreach like you do, do you think that that helps or do you think Life PD is just kind of whatever? Absolutely. Any, any time the police can be shown in a positive light uh, is, a, is a benefit. You know, unfortunately with the news today uh, it, it sells to show people, whether it's a doctor, a lawyer, police, what have you, it, it benefits the, police, the, the media to show them in a bad light because it creates discussion and, and, and you know, murmur amongst their watchers and say, oh, well, it's, you know, the police are bad, they, you know, there's a shooting or this, sure. this happening. But, you know, there's almost a million police officers in 
uh, United States today, you know, upwards of 900,000 police officers, and, and they do their job, you know, spotless every day. Um, and what they show in the media is just a 10-second clip of a five-minute interaction with somebody to where they're not getting the entire clip of what actually transpired before and after the five seconds that they're showing on the news. You know, but my brothers and sisters are out there and working every day. You know, I am not the only one doing what I do. There's sure. hundreds of thousands of people and Canadian officers on Instagram that do exactly what I do, and that's what needs to be shown. That, that you know, I, I speak with a lot of you know well-known Canadian officers throughout Instagram. You know, uh, through through chat and through phone, and they're out there doing what I do plus more every day. You know, Canadian Mattis, Canadian Rosie, Canadian Clinton. These guys. And gals are, are doing wonderful work, and this is what needs to be shown. Yeah. And as a matter of fact, uh, January 11th on A and E, uh, me and a lot of my Canine partners will be on America's Top Gun nice. competition. So, uh, and Duke and I competed against a lot of our buddies, and, and it's a great film, and it shows positive light Canine officers, and it's and they show what we do on Instagram and, and community relations. So, what you see on the media is just uh, uh, just a snapshot of the bad stuff that happens, which. You know, it happens in every every career and every profession out there. It's just they, they like to show us a certain light, but I'm here to tell you they're, they're, we're doing more good than, than bad. Yeah, I know when I'm watching Life PD and I hear the excuse that it's not my pants or this and that. I know personally, I'm like, <laughs> how do these guys deal with this crap? I, I, I Five minutes into this argument, I'd be done. Yeah. The, the patience that these officers show here and just the same insane garbage. Yeah. And one of the things, the nice thing about the... Uh, the vest cameras. I remember a few months back there was a story uh, about an officer took down a guy who came up onto a scene running his mouth because they were talking to his girlfriend or whatever and there was outcry and this and that well then the police were able to come out with their footage and they were showing the officer and the guy he took down sitting in his car five minutes later talking to her like they're perfectly cool. The guy in the back said hey man I get it. I I messed up. I shouldn't have went about it that way. I completely understand why he did what he did. And so the outcry wasn't from the person who was taken down it was from the casual observers on YouTube, yeah. and so when they just showed the takedown, everybody was up in arms, but when the police came out with the footage of the, the officer and the quote-unquote victim sitting in the back seat talking like they've known each other for five years because they've had the chance to say, hey, here's my side, and the guy's like, you're absolutely right, I didn't even think about it, I shouldn't have came about it that way, and everything was cool, but it's because the media takes two seconds and they're trying to get viewers and try to get ratings that they just blow everything out of proportion and so I definitely think that is the upside to the law enforcement having access to all the same tools and better tools and equipment. I gotta say you guys are getting uh now we're doing a podcast but that's all right. Real quick before I let you go and one thing I learned from Life PD is you guys got some uh, tricky uh, not really tricky but amazing technology. One of them that I never seen before is uh I guess they use air cannons to launch tracking. Have you seen these? Yep. Uh, the source or something like yep. that? And they actually shoot what looks like a soda can, and it just sticks under the guy's bumper, and they just cut off the chase, and they'll go tracking down in 20 minutes. And just the technology that comes out there, one, it increases you know pedestrian safety, because now you guys don't have to chase a jerk yep. through the city. It just sticks right on. And I mean, even right now, our department's looking into getting drones. Yeah. And just that technology alone... Uh, being able to deploy that drone, uh, we have large fields and large areas in our in our city to where we can, you know, deploy the drone and, and look for people and, and keep our officers safe. Where, where historically we would have to physically go in and look for that person and see where they're at. And, 
you know, endanger our officers. Now we can deploy drones, you know, with, with FLIR at, at, at nighttime and actually see where these people are at and come up with a better game plan. Our body cams are, are a huge blessing. You know, you talked about that, that one case that you, you heard about. But, you know, when we went to body cams years ago, um, I was actually one of the beta testers for our department, and I was dead set against it, you know, from, coming from the old school. Yeah, a lot of privacy. Need, why, why do I need to, to have, you know, it felt like I was not being trusted and everything, but after a couple of weeks of wearing this body camera, I can tell you now I don't leave the police department without it because it, it has saved our behind so many times with false allegations and complaints to where people will come in and complain and say this officer did that, this officer did this. But then when our department reviews the, the video, you know, 99% of the time we're in the right and, and they were in the wrong. So the technology is able to, you know, be more transparent as a police officer, but then cover cover the officer. So um, at the end of the day, and, at the, and then there are the rare cases that allows you guys in internal affairs to weed out the the small number of bad officers because it does catch you know the the zero 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 point one percent who does something that unfortunately would give you guys more bad publicity and so it's definitely beneficial in that way but uh it looks like the crowd is starting to pick up again i'm going to let you go so uh you guys can talk to the people and uh and move some books Thank you, Ed, so much for your time and everything you're doing. uh, Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much. All right. Talk soon. This has been a Digital 410 production.